welcome. Again, it's good to be with you. Good to share with you on this, this Lord's Day. Uh, I believe you're doing a series uh, on the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the next section of that. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy. In the city. And we trust God will bless His word to us this morning. Have you heard of the cobra effect or the cobra effect? No? Okay. You haven't. Good. I was reading about this. It's uh, sort of an example of what's called the law of intended uh, consequences, unintended consequences, I should say. That's when an attempted solution to a problem actually makes the problem worse. It gets its name from the, the, the time of British rule in colonial India. The British government at the time were concerned about the number of venomous cobra snakes in Delhi. And so what they did was they offered a bounty for anyone who brought a dead cobra to them. Initially, this was very successful. Large numbers of snakes were killed for the reward. However, some enterprising people began to breed cobras for the income. And when the government became aware of this, they scrapped the reward programme. Well... What did those snake breeders do? Well, they just released these worthless snakes actually into the community and made the problem worse. The cobra effect. And the result was the pop cobra population increased greatly in Delhi. That apparent solution to the problem actually made the situation worse. And we have in this passage, we could say an example of the cobra Effect. This is what I'd want us to have a look at this morning. We're going to have a look at it under three headings. The first heading is Great Persecution. The passage immediately follows on from the martyrdom of Stephen, which you were learning about last week. And we saw 
the very beginning that there was a young man there called Saul who was present at the death. In truth, verse 1 reveals more than he was just an innocent onlooker. He was actually giving approval for the death. Now we don't know exactly in what capacity Saul was there. Elsewhere, he tells us that he was advancing in Judaism well beyond many of his own age. And he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Paul was a powerful man. Saul, I should say, of course, you know he becomes Paul later on. But Saul was a powerful man and he used that power to approve the death of Stephen. And he was also a zealous man, he tells us. And he used this uh, zealous nature to carry out systematic persecution of the church in Jerusalem. We see that in verse 3. There it tells us that uh, Paul, Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them into prison. He went from house to house rounding up these Christians, throwing them into prison. Initially, he did it in Jerusalem. But later on, as you read into chapter 9, you will see that he was willing to travel beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, even beyond the boundaries of Israel. And there he would drag men and women into prison and give them the severest punishment possible. He tells us later on in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. To their death. Saul's actions, we see, are in contrast to those godly men spoken of in verse 2. Because we're told that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. You know, being a sympathiser of Christ was dangerous at this time. Yet these men, these godly men, probably at their own personal expense, bury this Christian martyr. And not only that, they mourn deeply for him. If you read the commentators, they suggest that these are not likely to be Christians who buried Stephen. They were probably pious Jews, men even of the Sanhedrin, who, who saw what was happening and they were appalled. And they deeply mourned at the injustice. And they maybe were sorrowful at the state of affairs in their country and repented to God for what was going on. We know, of course, that a number of Jewish leaders actually became followers. We have the example of Nicodemus. We have the example of Joseph of Arimathea, these leaders of the Jews who, who later turned to follow Christ. Perhaps these godly men also, this was the turning of them to Christ as well. This was the point in their life when they realised that they needed to repent. Wouldn't we expect the Lord to answer 
Stephen's dying prayer when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But this section also reminds us, doesn't it, that persecution of Christians has always gone on. It may vary in severity, from perhaps teasing in the schoolyard to locking up and starvation in one of the gulags in North Korea. Sometimes this persecution is directed deliberately against Christians. Other times Christians are just perhaps caught up in the policies of a secular government. But persecution has always gone on. It is normal for Christians and we can expect it as well. Jesus said, didn't he, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Recently I had the privilege of travelling to Kazakhstan, there in Central Asia, where evangelical Christians face restrictions from the government. We might call it persecution. They can't, for example, openly evangelise outside the walls of their church building. They can't hold children's meetings or young people's meetings. But when you talk to them, they're not despondent. They're not discouraged by this. Neither do they criticise their government. In fact, they're quite upbeat and they're quite grateful for the freedoms they still enjoy and they make the most of those freedoms as well. They're very creative in finding ways around the restrictions that are placed on them. But persecution is a normal part of the life of all those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's great persecution. The second thing I want you to see is great dispersion as well. You know, when you stamp on a puddle of water hard, the water scatters everywhere, doesn't it? And Saul here stamps down hard on the believers in Jerusalem and they are scattered, we're told, in the second part of verse 1. All except the apostles, we are told, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, in the first century Jerusalem, there were two types of Jews. This is maybe maybe been already explained to you. There were Hebraic Jews, those who spoke Aramaic, and there were Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists. And these Greek-speaking Jews were those who had once been scattered around the Mediterranean and had now come back to Jerusalem, more than likely because of a desire to be buried in the holy city. And it was these Greek-speaking Jews where there was a problem a couple of chapters earlier over the distribution of food. And seven of these Greek-speaking Jews were chosen to, to sort out that problem. Among them was Stephen and also Philip, who we'll be hearing about in a moment. And it appears that this persecution that Saul was leading was mainly focused on those Greek-speaking Jews. It 
seems that the Hebraic Jews carried less of a threat. Perhaps it was easier for them to blend into society, but the Greek-speaking Jews stood out like a sore thumb, and the persecution was focused against them. And whatever the reason, it seems that the apostles, being Hebraic-speaking Jews, were able to stay in Jerusalem. That's an important point. Do you remember our Lord's instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? A key verse in the book of Acts, where he tells his disciples, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see our Lord is predicting here a spreading, a dispersion, starting in Jerusalem. We know that there were 120 followers of Christ at that very beginning there in chapter 1 they, the 120 you gathered in, the, in that upper room some of those would stay in Jerusalem and be Christ's witnesses there but many of them would be scattered they would spread throughout Judea Samaria as we shall shortly see and still others would go to the ends of the earth with this gospel message the gospel radiates out from Jerusalem that's what we see happening here but not only did Jesus predict that this would happen we know that the Old Testament's predicted as well that Jerusalem would be a centre of blessing to the whole nations it started when God promised Abraham that he would be the he would be a blessing to all nations Right there in, Acts, in, in Genesis chapter 12. But the prophets speak about this, in particular the prophet Isaiah. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 51, please? Isaiah 51. And verse 4. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm one of a number of passages on Isaiah which speak here about the, the light spreading out, spreading out from, from Jerusalem. And we see this now being fulfilled in this passage. And Isaiah lived, what, 700 years before Christ came to this earth. These events must have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we see here God's word. God's word is trustworthy. It's true. We can believe it. We can put our hope in it. Are you putting your hope in God's word this morning? And so we see a great dispersion. Then finally, I want us to see great evangelism. 
as well. And in a sense, we come to the cobra effect here in this passage, at least as Saul was concerned. We must recognize, of course, that behind Saul was the devil himself. He was working through Saul. Indeed, the devil is behind all persecution of the church. But his attack on the church has the opposite effect to what he intended. Instead of silencing the church, which is what he was was intended to do, the persecution succeeded in spreading the church. Look at verse 4. We're told that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. That word preach there translates the Greek word that we use to evangelize. It's the same word that we use, which simply means to announce or to tell or communicate the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those who were scattered were, we might say, evangelists with a capital E. Men like Philip, who had particular gifts uh, of communicating the gospel. But others were ordinary believers who were scattered. And they just simply shared the good news with those who they came into contact with. They, we might call her evangelists with a small e. And they were very effective in what they did. Are you one of those this morning? Are you sharing the gospel with those who you come into contact with daily? Are you an evangelist with a small e, we might say? But it wasn't any good news that they announced. It wasn't any old good news. The good news that they were communicating here is described as the word. The logos is the Greek word there. And we'll see in the next section that this good news that they preached is the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ in verse 12. Does that message sound familiar? The kingdom of God? Didn't Jesus speak to the crowds on many occasions about the kingdom of God? Weren't his parables, parables of the kingdom? After his resurrection, we read that he spent those 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. This was the theme of his teaching. And it's as if Luke, as he writes the book of Acts here, is reminding us that there is but one message that we proclaim. The one and only message the good news. It's the same message that Jesus proclaimed. It's the same message that his apostles proclaimed. It's the message that Jesus Christ is Saviour and that he's King of, of God's Kingdom. And men and women, boys and girls, must cease from their rebellion, must seek his forgiveness and must submit to his kingship. The gospel message that we proclaim. The same message, the one message. And can I ask you this morning, I don't know you, but have you responded to that message of the gospel? Or are you still seeking to live in your your rebellion 
to God, going your own way. Whereas we, have you come to the point where you've realised that, that Christ is King of the Kingdom and we must submit to His Kingship. We must come to Him in forgiveness and live our lives as He, he, he uh, demands that we live them. Have you responded to that message? This is the good news that Philip announces in Samaria. It's also the message that we are to share as well. You know, we're not at liberty to proclaim another message. We're not at liberty to add to it or take away from it. It's the only message that can save people from their sins. It's the gospel message that this Saul, when he later became Paul, was not ashamed of. And he could write, is the power of God to salvation of everyone who believes. Yes, as Philip went, he performed miraculous signs, we see. And wouldn't it be great, I suppose we might be saying, if we could perform the same miraculous signs as we go out and as we share the gospel there, surely everyone would believe then. Well, did everybody believe Jesus when he performed miracles? We might get the impression that these miraculous signs were very common in the early church. However, it does seem that only a few individuals, mainly the apostles, performed them. And as we read through the back book of Acts, we find them getting less and fewer and fewer as we go on. And we could conclude that they becoming less frequent as, as time went on. And it's important to notice what these miraculous acts are called. They're called signs. They're called signs. What, what does a sign do? Well, a sign surely points to something else that's greater, doesn't it? You know, imagine I'm, I'm visiting Newcastle for the first time and I come to the outskirts and I see a sign which says, Welcome to Newcastle and I go there and I, I have my photograph taken by it and then I go away home, back home and I tell everybody I've been to Newcastle well, no you haven't been to Newcastle you haven't even been into Newcastle you've just been on the outskirts that would be most strange, wouldn't it? the signs point to something that is more important they point to the reality. And the reality that these signs that Philip performed was, was, was the message of the Lord Jesus. That was what it was pointed to. That was what was important. The message itself. The news, the good news of salvation of the, in the Lord Jesus. That's what should be important to us. That's what we need to be concentrating on. And so we read there was great joy in that city, in verse 8. And as the Acts continue, we read that these scattered Christians spread the good news far and wide. And many find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The exact opposite to what Saul intended, the cobra effect. And there have been other examples in history of exactly the same thing. I was reading about 1949 
uh, how, how where the national government of China uh, was defeated by the communists. And many missionaries were forced to leave China at that time. But China Inland Mission, now known as OMF, they decided that they were going to stay in the country. And they took the further step of faith of, of actually arranging for 49 more missionaries to be sent to China in 1949. However, it soon became plain and clear that the presence of those missionaries in China was actually causing problems for the Chinese believers. They were suffering increased suspicion and harassment as a result of those missionaries being present. And so in 1950, the China Inland Mission withdrew reluctantly 600 missionaries from China. On hearing the news, Christians in the West were devastated. It seemed a total disaster. It seemed that the devil had been victorious in China. Yet within four years, we read that 286 of those missionaries had been redeployed in other southeastern, Southeast Asia countries like Japan. And as a result, many more people got to hear the good news. Peoples who had previously been unreached. And what about China now? Well, the current estimates put between 80 and 90 million evangelical Christians in China. The devil hadn't been victorious. It was God who was in control. God who was sovereign. And let's thank God for his sovereignty. Mankind in his foolishness and his wickedness might, might try to restrict the church, might try to defeat the church. But what did our Lord say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We can thank God. They have a God who's all-powerful, who's in control when things might seem blackest to us. Yet, he is carrying out his plans and his purposes and we can have confidence in him because of that. We're going to hear a song in closing. It was one I'd hoped uh, we could sing, but uh, Paul tells me you don't know it. So it's perhaps one we, you might want to learn at some point, but it's on the video. It's another Stuart Townend uh, composition. Uh, I think it's been sung by Christine Getty uh, on this occasion. It's called Hear the Call of the Kingdom. <laughs> 